The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. The Lord replied, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we ask you, as we do every week, to be here with us this morning, and we trust that you are here. May my words be your words, and all of our thoughts, your thoughts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine with me for a moment that you're at the beach. If you need to take a deep breath and center yourself, whatever you need to do, imagine that you're at the beach. It's a nice, warm, sunny day. The water is crystal clear. There are some pretty big waves, but they don't scare you. They're mostly just beautiful to look at. You're out swimming, just drifting around, sort of playing with the undertow like it's not a big deal, when all of a sudden you realize you're further out than you thought you were. The waves larger than you're prepared for. Your feet all of a sudden can't reach the bottom and there's no one around. You're actually really far from the shore, you notice, and you feel all of a sudden very tired and the surf starts to become unmanageable. Wave after wave crashes down on you, pushing you under the surface and you start to think that you might be in some trouble. You try, of course, to keep your head above the water, but it gets harder and harder to swim back up after each successive wave pushes you under. And on a couple of occasions, you can't quite make it to the surface before you need to breathe again, and you get a mouthful of brackish salt water instead. It seems crazy to think that you might drown because you can see the bright sunlight and because just a few minutes ago, everything seemed fine. But the pounding of the surf is drowning out all other sound, and you just can't quite seem to get your body to do what you want it to do. More seawater forces its way into your mouth, and panic begins to set in. Drowning, something that you'd literally never thought of before, now seems eerily inevitable. But then there's another sound competing with the crashing waves, a rhythmic thumping that's accompanied by a big dark shadow and a great wind. And then seemingly out of nowhere, a white life preserver ring plops into the water next to you. It is the most beautiful thing you've ever seen in your life. You go in that instant from being sure that you're going to drown to being assured of your salvation. Weekly, with sort of your last strength, you reach out for dear life and hold on as you're lifted up out of the sea, up into the rescue helicopter and back to the beach and to safety. Now, an hour or so later, you're being interviewed by the local news about the incident. So you thought your life was over, they say. You thought it was the end. What happened? How were you saved? And it's at at this point, like any normal person, that you take some of the credit for yourself. 
Well, you say a big thank you, of course, to the lifeguards at the beach, the Coast Guard, and especially to the EMTs who pumped all that water out of my lungs. But I have to say that the most critical moment of the whole incident was when that life ring landed in the water next to me and I had to decide whether to grab hold of it or not. I should get a little credit, don't you think, for making such a good decision there? Of course, that's ridiculous. No one of us would ever say such a thing. And yet I feel like when we talk about our Christian salvation, almost every one of us, consciously or subconsciously, wants to reserve a little credit for ourselves. Quote, unquote, a little credit is our addiction. We know not to take all of it. We're smart enough for that. We know that Jesus is the Savior. But didn't we do something? Didn't we do a little bit? Don't we talk about it as the best decision we ever made? Didn't we have to respond in some way? Weren't we the ones who had to give our lives to Christ? Didn't we go that one yard after Jesus went the 99? Weren't we the ones who had to ask Christ into our hearts? Even Jesus says in Revelation that he's standing at the door knocking. Aren't we the ones who have to actually open it? Didn't we have to reach out for that life preserver? Don't we get a little credit? Now, the story that we read this morning in Luke 17 is Jesus' assault on the idea of a little credit. The disciples come to him and ask him to increase their faith. And at first glance, this seems like, at worst, a benign request, and at best, sort of a laudable one. Isn't it a good thing to want more faith? Well, apparently not, according to Jesus. He responds with this verbal smackdown. If you had faith even the size of a mustard seed, tiny, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Elsewhere, he says that that same tiny faith, if it existed, could literally move mountains from here to there. Why does he react so harshly to the disciples' desire for more faith? Well, Jesus knows our propensity to want a little credit, and he will not stand for it. Jesus is the physician giving us the terrible diagnosis that we've even been hiding from ourselves. He tells the truth no matter how painful it is. And his truth is that he will not be the one who gives you a little more of something you already have. He insists, Jesus insists on being all that you have. We think like the disciples thought, that we have some faith and could use a little more. In response, Jesus tells them they have no faith. And we think, like the disciples probably did, that we're pretty good, but we could stand to get a little bit better. In response, Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount. Remember that one? You have heard that it was said, yet I say to you, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I say to you, says Jesus, do not resist 
an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. You have heard that it was said you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I say to you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. I tell you that anyone who is angry, anyone who says you fool, will be liable to the fire of hell. And finally, you must be perfect. Perfect. As your Father in heaven is perfect. You see, inherent in the request to have more faith is the idea that we already have some faith of our own. And Jesus takes us back to square one. Outside of him, we have no faith at all. Inherent in the idea that we could stand to get a little better is the idea that we're already pretty good. Again, Jesus takes us back to square one. Outside of him, he suggests, we aren't even alive. Wait, you might say, not alive? Surely you must be exaggerating. Well, in Ephesians 2, St. Paul says this and couldn't be more blunt about it. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Boom. Dead. As far as the ability to please God goes, you've flatlined. It's over. You're dead. But of course, St. Paul's not finished there. He does say you were dead in trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Listen, The Christian story is not a story of a narrow escape from the jaws of death. Ours is a story of death and resurrection. See, my drowning swimmer story was a little bit of a trick. Even it's not profound enough. See, we are maybe, if we're forced to, willing to admit that we're a drowning swimmer and that we're in desperate need of salvation. But Jesus wants to go even a step further. Jesus says, we're already dead. He refuses to even give us the chance to brag about the good decision we made to reach out for the life ring. He shows us that we need so much more than a rescue. We need a resurrection. The law, the rules, the standards, the holiness of God is how he shows us that we're dead. And the Sermon on the Mount that I quoted from a second ago is a perfect example. The difficult laws of you have heard it said, like an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and love your neighbor and all these things make us think that we're drowning, like we can barely stay afloat. The impossible law of, but I say to you, anyone who is angry is a murderer. Anyone who slaps you, you should turn the other cheek to them. These impossible laws of, but I say to you, show us that we're already dead. And therefore, you must be perfect 
is the final nail in the coffin. The Christian story is not a story of a narrow escape from the jaws of death. Ours is a story of death and then a story of resurrection. You see, Jesus refuses to be our helper. He won't do it. He refuses to be our coach. He refuses to be that final thing that pushes us over the top to greatness. He refuses to be the top-up on our tank of faith. He refuses even to be the great marathon to which we need add only one step. He will not be the 99 yards. In fact, he will not even wait for you to answer the door when he stands knocking. Listen to Romans 5. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Think of your door. While we are desperately closing latches and throwing deadbolts and shouting through the door, no thanks, come back another time, I'm not home. This is when God sends his son to us and for us. This is when Jesus is standing there knocking as the book of Revelation attests. But his knock is cracking the planks, busting the locks, and tearing the door off its hinges. Your door is coming down. His love for you cannot be contained. And when Christ's knocking is over and the door is lying in smithereens on the ground, all we can do is meekly say, well, come in. You're all I have. And into that surrender, Christ Jesus, our Savior, says, yes, I am all you have, and I am all you need. When the life preserver ring lands next to you in the turbulent ocean, there's no weighing of options. There's no thinking twice. It is the most beautiful thing you've ever seen in your life. And when Jesus' disciples come to him and ask him to increase their faith, Jesus knows that he needs to help them see that they are drowning, that they, in fact, are already dead. They don't know it, and we often don't know it either, and so we come to Jesus like they did, asking for more faith or asking him to be our helper, or asking him to be our coach, to be our 99 yards. But Jesus will not have it. He will only be your everything. If you had any faith at all, he says, you could move mountains. Shall we go outside and try it? Anyone? In terms of faith, in terms of pleasing God, we are dead. But even our death is not the end of our story. But God, being rich in mercy, 
because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You are alive together with Christ. Jesus is our everything. He is all that we have, and he is all that we need. Amen.